As the story goes, when the angel Gabriel dropped out of the heavens and into the living room of a young Jewish girl named Maryam, sometime between the year 6 BC and 4 AD, give or take a couple years, Maryam's response was the very pious, let it be with me according to thy word. That's fiat in Latin. Let it be, as the Beatles sang, a more active translation would be, let's do it. Let's do this thing. This is not passive acquiescence on Mary's part. This is active and eager, maybe even excited participation. This will happen. This must happen. Because as the angel reminded her, nothing will be impossible with God. She breaks all the rules, this fiercely independent young woman of the first century. We all know women like Mary. Some of them are sitting in this room this morning. We live in a time and a place in which the the apocalyptic spirit of Mary is alive and well once again when women who have been taught one way of being in the world are finding new and different ways. They're taking the script that culture has handed them and radically reshaping it. Thanks be to God. Who knows why or how Mary got to that place? Probably she was as young as 13 or 14. In one sense, she had precious few role models in that first century culture. But in another sense, at least if Mary's been paying attention in Sunday school all these years, she's been hearing about fierce and independently-minded women whom God has been calling for special purposes throughout the generations. She's heard about Sarah and Hagar and Leah and Rachel, Rebecca and Ruth and Hadassah, who was called Esther. Like John the Baptist, Mary's nephew, according to tradition, who takes upon himself the mantle of an Old Testament prophet, Mary, in the middle of her own personal apocalypse, claims the mantle of an Old Testament matriarch, the ones who used both their cunning and their compassion in order to bring about God's purposes on earth, often in spite of the machinations of the men in their lives. And now, without benefit of a single gentleman getting involved in the process, Mary conceives. She conceives the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, the one for whom she has been praying and longing her entire life. That one takes up residence in her body. And she sings that famous song that begins, My soul doth magnify the Lord. But for Mary, who probably learned this song at her mother's knee, and probably in the Hebrew language, soul does not mean her psyche. It doesn't mean her inward parts. It means her entirety, right? Her nephesh in Hebrew, her body and her spirit. My body magnifies the Lord, Mary says. Literally, my body makes God bigger, right? My very flesh rejoices in God my Savior, for God has done amazing things for me. After the angel has gone back into heaven, we don't really actually have much of a sense of what's going through Mary's mind, except that the very next verse finds her undertaking this pretty dangerous journey, probably several days long, on foot, through enemy territory, a young woman alone and vulnerable. She's headed to visit Elizabeth, her cousin. That's a, a word that can mean any female relation. Elizabeth is probably a good generation or two older than Mary. And Elizabeth, too, it turns out, is miraculously with child. The stakes of this journey, the bravery it would have taken for Mary to, to make this journey, suggest to me that maybe at a certain level she's a little bit terrified because she knows that in saying yes to this incredibly unorthodox pregnancy, breaking all the rules she knows, 
she knows that she's going to need support in order to get through with what she must do. In Luke's gospel, Joseph is nowhere to be found. In Luke's gospel, Mary finds Elizabeth, and the two of them engage in what I think is maybe the only conversation in the entire Bible that manages to almost pass the famous Bechtel test. That's two women characters with names who talk about something other than a man. That's the Bechtel test. You can Google it later. Surprisingly few movies and plays and books actually pass this thing. The Bible is no different. I am hard-pressed to think of another scene in Scripture that even features two named female characters and lets them talk. The Bible is almost exclusively a text for and about men. But this is Luke's great reversal. This is the narrative version of the song that Mary is singing about a God who sends the powerful ones packing and invites the ones who have been hanging out on the margins to take center stage. For the first time in several thousand years, two women command the biblical spotlight, and they do not talk about the men in their lives. They talk about their bodies. They talk about the weird and wonderful things that God is doing, and not just deep down in their souls, right? This is not a spiritual conversation among pious church ladies. Before the stable, before the manger, before little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay enters the picture, God's salvation arrives on earth. We can say salvation comes to humankind, first of all, in a woman's uterus. I don't say that for shock value. I say it to remind all of us, myself included, that we are the inheritors of a tradition that is fundamentally uncomfortable naming body parts, especially the body parts of women. And that reticence is neither universal nor is it pious. Christianity inherited this, this heavy polemic from the Greek world that it grew up in, a polemic that separated out body and soul, right? Bodies were bad, bodies were shameful, souls were good, souls were holy, according to Greek philosophers. And the task of the truly spiritual one was to shed her body and deny her flesh and become as fully and exclusively a disembodied soul as possible. The early church called that way of thinking a heresy, but it lives on in all kinds of ways today. Bodies are suspect because bodies change, bodies decay, bodies grow old and they die. They are not perfect. At least very few of us think that our bodies are perfect. There are probably a lot of things that we would change about them given the opportunity. And our bodies do things that we don't like to think about or talk about in church. I once got into kind of some hot water from suggesting from this very pulpit that the reason baby Jesus wore swaddling clothes was that because, like all babies, he pooped. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. But the writer to the Hebrews says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. All the religious pretty nice stuff, the writer of the Hebrews says, that is not what God wants. Jesus says in the letter of the Hebrews, a body you have prepared for me. A body is prepared for the Son of God. A body that is formed inside Mary's own body. And that is the body that is then resurrected some 30 odd years later. Resurrection and incarnation are really the same thing. They're two parts of the same miracle, both of the miracles that are fundamentally concerned with this question of human physicality. From first to last, ours is a tradition in which bodies themselves are the sites of the most profound miracles God has on offer. There is no miracle in Scripture that doesn't start with somebody's body. About a year ago, I participated in a 
sort of a symposium conversation. There were a bunch of former evangelicals. I grew up in an evangelical church. Uh, many of the people in this conversation were evangelical women. Some of them had grown up in a youth group just like mine. And what we ended up talking about quite a bit was purity culture. If you don't know what that means, you probably didn't grow up in an evangelical church in the 80s and 90s. Purity culture, which is still a thing in many parts of the country, uh, is a sort of system of rituals and guidelines. It involves purity rings that fathers would give to their daughters and sometimes to their sons, teaching and theology that encouraged teenage Christians to save themselves for marriage. But the way that many of us experienced this purity culture 20 years ago or so, or so carried with it a lot of really negative and shaming messages about our bodies, women especially. Women got this stuff in, in especially damaging ways because they were often seen as the problem. And even the gay kids like me who wore the purity ring, I had one, and the purity pledge in my back pocket. We got a heavy dose of this stuff, and I actually didn't particularly mind it. I was in no way interested in losing my virginity to one of my female classmates. So <laughs> for me, <laughs> the ring was like this flashy piece of costume jewelry that I got to wear, and it meant that I didn't have to talk about what was going on for me. Everybody just gave me a pass. We're not going to talk about any of that stuff. But as I've been as I've been talking to some of the women who grew up in this culture along with me, some of them the girls in my youth group, right, I've become more and more gradually aware of just how profoundly shaped we were, men and women alike, by these messages that we heard about what our bodies did, what our bodies wanted to do, and how we should police that. I thought I had left all that stuff behind me when I came out, and then I began to notice that it was still with me. I noticed it especially when I would sit down to pray, and I would instinctively go back to that old framework. God is up here, God is here, and everything that happens below the neck is bad, it's suspect, it's dangerous, it's worthy of God's wrath and God's judgment. And that kind of disconnect, that kind of black and white thinking, which is body shaming, it's not actually what I believe about Scripture, about the way God works, but it's the stuff that my body knows. My body gets that stuff, even when my head doesn't. And women bear a particular, a particular kind of body shame in our culture. Gay kids, like me, got it in a very particular way, when your body becomes a scapegoat for a whole theological system's sense of corporate identity. I think many of us as men bear a kind of toxic body shame with us, too. When you're told over and over again that your body is violent and uncontrollable and shameful, Guess what happens? Your body becomes all of those things. And that is not actually how we were created, either as men or as women. Our bodies were not meant to be houses for our shame. Our bodies were made to be houses for God's salvation. So I wrestle with this stuff. Maybe you do too. I can think all kinds of beautiful, heady, theological thoughts about bodies and sanctity and God, but what happens when I sit down to pray is a very different thing, and the shame of that 13-year-old gay kid is like written into my flesh. And I started to be really bothered by it. It started to really weigh on me. I talked to my spiritual director about it, I started doing yoga, that helped, and finally I went to the desert. I went to northern New Mexico, which is a holy place for me, not really knowing why, but for three days, I sat in silence and experienced this stuff, like landing in my body, the shame, 
the feelings of uneasiness and unworth and all the wrong stuff, kind of like Mary sitting at Elizabeth's feet, this dissonance between what I believe in my head and what my body thinks it knows about God. And I prayed for, for release, although I didn't really know what that would look like, and frankly, it terrified me a little bit to contemplate. Those of you who have been sitting in this space listening to me preach for the last nine years know that I am not particularly given to mystical experiences, but for most of my life I have carried this sort of quiet longing to experience something like what Mary experiences in Luke's Gospel when the angel Gabriel comes crashing down into her living room. That's not quite what happened. <laughs> what happened is that I found myself sitting in darkness in the early dawn. I saw the sun beginning to rise through the window out beyond kind of one of the mesas, and I realized that I was freezing. I was freezing cold. So I set out off on the dirt road toward the sun, and it was as simple as this. I was shivering with cold one moment, and then the sun rose above the mesa, and I was warm. And I realized how long I have been walking around freezing with this cold inside of me. And little by little, it's like I could feel that place beginning to melt. And like Mary, a hymn that I didn't even know I knew came to my lips, Christ whose glory fills the skies, Christ, the true, the only light, son of righteousness, arise, scatter all the shades of night. Day spring from on high draw near, day star in my heart appear. Dark and cheerless is the morn unaccompanied by thee, Joyless is the day's return till thy mercy beams I see, till thy inward light impart, glad my eyes and warm my heart. Visit then this soul of mine, loose the bonds of sin and grief, fill me, radiancy divine, scatter all my unbelief, more and more thy self-display, shining to a perfect day. It was the closest I think I've ever come to a conversion experience. Not that everything was solved overnight, but what I heard in that silence of the embracing sunlight was something like this. It wasn't a voice, I didn't hear it, but I felt like something was saying to me, your body belongs to me. Your body is mine. Sacrifices and burnt offerings I have not required, but a body I have prepared for you. Friends, this is the last tool in our Advent toolkit. Maybe it's the most fundamental tool we've got. These bodies that we have been given, the gift of our own incarnation, the only place where God can get at us. In a few minutes, we'll invite you forward to this altar. We'll invite you to stand or to kneel at this rail, and on your hand or on your tongue, we'll place this thin little wafer cracker, and you will hear these words, this is the body of Christ given for you. It means the wafer, it means the community gathered to receive it, and it means this, the flesh that we lug around with us, the flesh that carries the wounds of our shame. Advent asks us to step into those places, to step into the darkness, the stuff that we don't understand, the stuff that we're afraid of. We're invited to, to find communities, bodies of other people who are doing work that matters to us. We're invited to learn how to sing, both in ecstatic joy and when our hearts are restricted and knotted with pain. And finally, at the end of that journey, we're invited to join with Mary in welcoming God into our flesh, into our bodies. That's what incarnation 
is all about, that God did not just take, take on flesh one time in human history. God takes on flesh every time we gather at this altar, and we, we metabolize the stuff that we hear about. We, we take it into our bodies. We slowly, sip by sip, nibble by nibble, take in the words and the traditions and the teachings, and God takes up residence in our bodies, transforms them from the inside out, explodes the pain and the shame that we carry, the places where we experience the hurt and the violence done to us. And in that process, I believe, we learn once again how to trust what our bodies know. We learn how to trust our bodies. And when we do that, we learn once again how to trust the one who made them. A wise old priest once said, the hand that made all things is the hand that will end all things. And we can trust that hand because that hand has a nail scar in it. May that trust be yours this season and every season. May the scars you bear be crowns of righteousness. The wounds you bear become your glory. May you learn to trust your body once again. Merry Christmas, friends.